spotlighting Hawaii's leaders. We want to bring in Governor David E. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Lieutenant Governor, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Mayor Derek Kawakami. Thank you so much, uh, Senator, for being here. Spotlighting the issues. Where is the virus right now in our community? How much is this overall going to cost the state? How are you responding to the community's concerns? Talk about the level of citations that you guys are writing. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Kalei Suji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs and Beachside Roofing. Well, good morning. Thanks so much for tuning in here on this Wednesday morning. I'm Ryan Kalesuji, joined by Yanji Denise, and this is Spotlight Hawaii on the platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. And Yanji, this morning, we dive right back into the world of politics and the race for governor. That's right. Gubernatorial candidate Vicky Cayetano is joining us this morning. She holds the distinction as the only person who's actually declared her candidacy uh, in the race for governor. Uh, thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you both for having me. So it's been a few months since you were last on. Let's just get a general update. How's the campaign going? And, and how are you feeling about what's happening in Hawaii right now? Well, I believe that my campaign is gaining momentum every day. And I'm just so grateful for all the support uh, and all the volunteers coming forward. And I think it's because they see in me a candidate who has a lifetime of experience. You know, I built my business from the ground up, uh, which means that I've had to make real life decisions, making payroll, making decisions that impact uh, the lives of so many of the employees, uh, our Ohana, you know? And uh, so over the course of 34 years, it's the kind of leadership experience that I think our, I know our state really needs at this time more than ever. And I think that's why we've been able to really gain that momentum and bring people, give them hope that there is a future to make Hawaii a better place for all of us. So that's what I'm running for. And that's why I want to uh, apply all these years of experience to getting uh, our state in the right direction. You know, it's hard to believe, but the, the primary election is six months away. Uh, and, and so that timeline is, is really coming close here. Uh, yesterday, we got a better idea of how much money all of you uh, are working with as uh, those fund, you know, the fundraising totals were announced and the campaign spending uh, report was released. Uh, what were your thoughts about just where you're at and, and your, the ability that you've had over these past few months since you've declared that you are a candidate uh, to fundraise and to be able to navigate through that? Well, my team and I are working hard every day to you know, reach as many people as possible. Obviously, I started much later than uh, either of my opponents. Uh, but, you know, I'm not running to make small kind change. I'm running to make big change. That. And so I think this is why we've been able to make the kind of progress we have made in a relatively short time. So I'm very excited and very encouraged. Let's talk a little bit about the dual roles that you have right now. Obviously, um, you've really distinguished yourself as a business leader in our community. And I'd imagine that running your business um, is a full time job and then some. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you're being how you've been able to do both the campaign and running your business and what that would hold for the future. Well, you know, uh, Yanji, that's a very good question, because uh, 
we all know the challenges of running business and now more than ever. Um, and uh, so I'm very pleased to say that uh, we have been very busy building a team, not just recently, but over the years. And uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks, uh, there will be an announcement that I will be stepping out of my role as president of our company, a position that I've been privileged to have for 34 years. You know, that's kind of lifetime commitment. I've actually spent my whole life there. Uh, but I'll be stepping out of that role into a uh, what we call a senior advisor. And our company will be very happy to welcome a new president. Uh, he's probably about three years uh, older than I was when I started the business. So he's going to lead the next team of leaders uh, for our company. So that will allow me to focus on this campaign uh, even more, which really is, you know, running for governor is a full-time job. And that's what I'm going to be doing. And I'm looking forward to getting out there even more. I'm curious to know, you know, during this time of the pandemic, how you've been able to navigate uh, just campaigning and how things have changed without being able to have uh, as many in-person events because of some of the regulations and, and even just going off to the neighbor islands and being able to gather with folks there. Uh, how have you navigated through these challenges of COVID-19 uh, amongst this campaign season? So I'd like to talk about how have we nav navigated through COVID even in the business world. And I think uh, that's important because, you know, I believe that in challenging times, more communication is important. It's more important than ever. And I think for our business, we've been able to survive because we did that. Uh, we also had uh, to be able to pivot and make uh, changes quickly to adapt to the changing volume. And I think that's really important for any organization is clarity, communication, and moving forward with urgency. Now going to the campaign side, it's the same kind of formula. You've got to have the clarity that we're living in a new world. There aren't those huge town hall meetings uh, anymore. I remember the Ariyoshis telling me that they had 50,000 people at Aloha Stadium when he was running for governor. Uh, those days are very gone. <laughs> so we just had to pivot and uh, get out there. It is more work, I would say, because you're having to reach fewer people multiple times, right? You're having to expand that. So it's just, for me, it's not so difficult. It's being able to do a lot of Zoom calls, uh, smaller one-on-one -on -one meetings, um, and uh, still being able to touch people uh, even though it is in a different way. Let's dive into some of the issues. Miguel has a question, says, what big changes is she proposing? Last week you released your affordable housing plan. Um, I'm sure we could probably fill the whole half hour on just that, but in a nutshell for Miguel and, and other potential voters who are watching, when it comes to affordable housing in particular, because that is such an important issue and really is the heart of so many other issues in our state, uh, tell us a little bit about your plan. So, you know, to Miguel and the others who asked that question, I think one of the things I would preface before talking about my affordable housing plan is that if you look at the history, uh, whether from the legislature or even the executive branch, uh, we've not been short of plans. There have been a lot of plans floated, and a number of them are actually good plans. But to take something from an idea and a plan to executing it and making it happen, that's where the roadblock has been the problem. That's where we've not, we've not seen this. And this is why I'm running, to bring my life career experience of taking vision, ideas, and making them happen, executing them. 
if we can do that, that is really the key to the success of changing people's lives for the better. With respect to the affordable housing plan, my plan is made so that we can not only keep people here, but bring our young people back. You know, five years in a row now, Hawaii, the state of Hawaii has experienced a shrinking population. One of the few states that, that has this negative uh, experience. And the reason for that, and the saddest part, is because a lot of our young people are leaving these islands because their hopes of ever uh, having a home or even being able to uh, live here are, are just not possible. And so they've gone to Nevada, Arizona, Oregon, you name it. The saddest part is in this process, our ohana is being broken up. And uh, that's not the Hawaii that we all know and that we love and want to keep. So the affordable housing plan has three main components. One is a rent to own. For many first-time owners, that down payment is what makes it very difficult for them to ever own a home. Under my plan, the rent that they pay over a course of 20 to 25 years, in essence, a mortgage plan, will at the end of that time allow them to own the home. The second part of it is designated workforce housing. We need to realize that we are at a crisis with certain um, professions such as healthcare, nurses in particular, first uh, responders, and of course, teachers. And if we don't address those shortages, we are going to be a community in crisis. We're just almost at the tipping point already. Uh, and many of those, again, they leave because they can't afford to live here. So designated workforce housing will target affordable housing for these three segments of our community. And the last is really an affordable rental program because not everybody uh, needs to say they want to own a home. In particular, these days uh, of our young people, they're not sure what they want to do. Just looking to have something that's affordable so that they can live in Hawaii, that's where the affordable rental program will be most applicable to them. Uh, but more than anything, it's working with the legislators to collaborate with the developers, the unions, bringing all these important segments together to execute on these plans. This is the most important part of making things happen for our people. One of the other reasons why we know that many people are ending up having to leave the state, and we've seen this, uh, you know, even more so during the pandemic, was just the lack of uh, jobs and opportunities for those individuals who have to seek employment in other uh, areas. Uh, where do you see and how would you help to create maybe different industries or how do you see uh, people really being able to not only come home and be able to live here, but have a job that will be able to help support that? So, you know, I had the privilege of being at the uh, Hawaii Executive Conference over the last couple of days. And it was so interesting to see uh, people from, again, all these segments of our community uh, to come together to talk about the future for Hawaii. And one of the things that I took away with me is really a validation of what I've been saying, that there are new industries out there. But what it takes is really a mindset that is much more, uh, shall we say, uh, entrepreneurial, looking at things that we're so set with what we see, the traditional tourism market. 
that is very hard for many people, I think, in government today to see anything else differently. And that's what I'm excited about because as an entrepreneur, I see things that people don't see, but we could be a leader in the climate crisis uh, movement. We can be a leader in film and industry. We can be a leader in information technology, cybersecurity. These are jobs where people can do it. You know, you don't have to have a headquarters here. People can be working here. These are jobs that would excite uh, and attract the next generation who are not necessarily going to be happy working, you know, 30 years in a service industry. But they're not jobs. There are, some of them are already in place, but can be expanded. As an example, I share with you, when we were looking for a new IT person for our company. Uh, our IT head on the mainland was really disappointed and shocked that it was so difficult to find somebody here. You know, why is that? Well, because we also have to connect to our schools. Because to have these new economies, new businesses, you also have to marry it to the education system that we are providing. So it's connecting all these dots, affordable housing, this, uh, job opportunities, our education system, government, uh, private sector, everyone coming together to collaborate so that we can uh, make these things happen. One of the big things that the next governor undoubtedly will face, one of the major challenges will be how to handle Red Hill. Um, of course, there's the cleanup side and there's also the decommissioning side, which the Pentagon says now that they are not necessarily going to do, that they will fight that order and at least maintain the right to decide if and when that happens. What are your thoughts on what should happen to that facility, knowing, you know, as we have this conversation, that there are things that, uh, you know, people in power know that we don't necessarily have access to, but from where you see it now, now, do you think that those tanks should be drained? So my position on Red Hill has always been ensure the safety of drinking water and the aquifer. This situation goes beyond the drinking water. It's all about the relationship that Hawaii has with the Navy and the military as a whole. It's also, frankly, about how uh, we have continually been kicking the can down the road and not addressing these problems earlier. Again, Red Hill is not a surprise uh, to many people. This has been talked about for years, uh, but sadly to say, we never quite address it until it becomes a crisis, an emergency. I think that the culture of reacting rather than being able to proactively address issues is very problematic in our you know, government and in our community. And I think it's really important that we need to change that mindset. Um, absolutely, the Navy needs to realize what's at stake here. Because in addition, like I said, it sets a tone for all the other uh, discussions that need to be had regarding military leases that are going to be renewed under the next governor's uh, term, you know. And I think they need to understand that it's not just about Red Hill. It goes beyond that. And if there is a trustful relationship, I don't see how we can uh, address that and move forward. And if you think of what's at stake, it goes beyond just not only for the state of Hawaii and our residents, but what the military uh, plays a role in globally is so significant. The impact that it has nationally, globally, and so I would, as governor, 
really bring them forward to say, we need to address these issues because there's no ifs, ands, or buts. We need to have assurance of clean water for our residents, and we need to make sure that the position of the military here is positive for the rest of the world and, of course, for our residents. Another issue that continues or debate that continues to come up each legislative session is that of gambling. And if that is something that should be uh, legalized in Hawaii in some degree, whether it be a standalone casino uh, that is run through you know, for Native Hawaiians or whether it be a lottery system, what are your thoughts on gambling here in Hawaii? And if that is something that you would ever consider if given the opportunity to lead the state? So I think gambling as it pertains for local residents, I'm always uh, hesitant to support anything like that. And the reason is I've seen uh, the other problems, the social problems that accompany it. A lot of other issues follow along with gambling. If we're talking about gambling uh, that for on Native Hawaiian uh, land that they want to um, control and only for tourists, you know, on a standalone uh, concept. It's something I'd be opening, open to listening to. Uh, I try not to be judgmental. I think it's important to be open-minded and to see, but you always have to balance it out with what you're going to gain with what you're going to lose in the process of doing this. As, as it respects to a lottery, as I've shared before, you know, we're a very small population compared to other states on the mainland. If you notice West Coast, East Coast, it's always multiple states coming together for the hundreds of millions that people want to hope to get. And so for us to really have any kind of meaningful payout, uh, you'd have to really marry up to one of those systems and they'd have to be able to give us access or be willing to admit us into that process. Uh, so I'm not sure, but I think that a lottery here would not yield a lot. Uh, and once again, I'm, my concern would be that it would hurt the very people that we want to help. Uh, there's a question here from the audience. We always like to bring them in. She says, this is Ingrid says, so do you support permanently closing the Red Hill tanks and relocating that fuel? Please be specific. Uh, when we have, you know, talked to Governor Ige in the past, he had said, he'd kind of walked back the thought that it needs to be permanently shut down, saying that if they could make assurances that it would be safe and indeed double wall that facility, that there could be room for the state to make that allowance. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that, again, it's hard for me to believe that they haven't done that study over the course of the last 20 plus years that we've known about this problem. Uh, I do agree with him that if you could double wall and assure that there is no leakage, that seems to be uh, the most practical uh, way to go with this. To relocate it is a massive undertaking. Uh, but again, if there's no way to assure the security, you, you of the of the leakage that it doesn't leak, then I think you, there is no choice. It has to be moved above ground. And with that, you have to determine how much of those uh, tanks and the volume is really necessary. Because as it is right now, I don't think you'd find space above ground to relocate that volume, the number of tanks that they have. Uh, but I really question whether we need that much given that the situation has changed now you know our ships today don't use that kind of fuel so unfortunately it's not as simple as just saying let's move it over it's not like moving a house or anything like that but it's hard for me to believe that those studies weren't done already uh and and, and looked at 
to make this decision so that we can move forward. I want to also, you know, address some of the other issues that we face here in our community. And one of that uh, hot topic that has come up during this pandemic has been that of tourism and finding that balance between local residents as well as the number of visitors that are coming to our islands. But we saw a big surge over the last summer break, and uh, there were many concerned residents here that felt like that we uh, had just opened up too much too quickly. Uh, after the pandemic. What are your thoughts on trying to find that balance with tourism, knowing that it is a very important part of our economic stability and growth and the jobs that it affords, but also finding ways to manage that? How would you propose that we find this balance between uh, local residents and areas and spaces that they enjoy, as well as being open to what tourists expect when they visit our islands? So John DeVries and HTA released a plan, and I thought it was really spot on in terms of the future of tourism. And it is focused very much on that balance. So I think that uh, the counties have taken the right step, first of all, in uh, addressing illegal vacation rentals. Uh, that is the kind of thing that one does not generate jobs, and it does increase the cost of housing. Uh, if you look out of the 10 million visitors that we had back in 2019, about a third of that growth uh, came from vacation rentals, not, not the hotels. They didn't experience that growth. And so I think that's one thing. The second thing is in managing uh, a lot of the destination spots that visitors go to. When residents have to compete to be able to go to uh, Hanuma Bay or other places like that, it really creates resentment. And I think that HTA, again, is in there advocating that these certain of these uh, vacation spots have to be one, uh, reserved, and two, that tourists would pay for them um, in order for us to also manage them more responsibly. It's all in the right direction. And then third is the kind of visitor that we want to attract. I think in the past, the focus was just bring in visitors. But now John DeFries, has, his emphasis, I think is spot on. It's bring in the right kind of visitor. And people who will not only want to come see Hawaii, want to learn about what makes Hawaii special and who will respect the Aina and respect the local residents here. So I think that that kind of direction is all in the in the right way of creating a much more manageable tourism. Cut down on the uh, illegal vacation rentals, eliminate that. Two is uh, make sure that some of these destinations have a conservation fee to them and that they're reserved so that they don't just flood them so we can manage the number of people going in. And three, have a focus on the type of visitors, tourists, that we want to attract. With those kind of fees, uh, we've talked to the different county mayors and they all have said that they want to do fees uh, similar to what Hanauma Bay has or even on Hawaii Island, Hapuna Beach now charging visitors to go there, but Kamaina can still visit for free. There's also been talk at the state level of adding a green fee for everyone who lands in Hawaii. Do you support all of those kinds of fees? Do you think that it's better to have destination specific so that if you go to a certain hike or beach park or what have you, that those fees stay there? Or do you like this idea of an overall green fee in addition to those uh, targeted fees? 
So I think that's where listening to the community and working with the county mayors is really important in order to come up with the best plan. I think when you have an overall fee, um, one, there will be a lot of question about who's getting how much of that allocate, right? What's the allocation going to be? And, and rightfully so from each county. And I think certain counties' needs are different from others. So I want to make sure that the fee, the fees that we collect go to the right place in the right amounts and that it, people are held accountable in how it's being dispersed. So if I were to say right now without knowing all the details, I would probably be probably be more in favor of not having a statewide, but more letting the counties assess, assess uh, based on their various uh, visitor destinations. You know, it's hard to get through any conversation these days without bringing up COVID-19. And, uh, you know, although we are looking in, like we are in a position where things are getting better, I wanted to just kind of get your assessment of where we're at overall with the pandemic. Uh, no doubt the next governor that takes over will have uh, potentially some lingering effects of how this pandemic has impacted the state and who knows if there's any other variants on the horizon but how uh you know as, as you look into a p potential leadership position knowing that the factors of COVID-19 that it presents and the impact it could have on our community uh, how do you think you would be able to lead the state while also being flexible and understanding that this uh, a new variant could be right around the corner once again impacting the state so you know, one of the most important things to me for a governor is to be able to listen to the community. When I started off my campaign, my position was that I believe that we need to have a statewide plan and that we need to always be on guard for future variants, which are inevitable. I still stand by saying that there should be a statewide plan. However, in talking to people, I find that there is really a level of frustration in terms of having restrictions, very restrictive restrictions for into perpetuity in their mind, right? There is no deadline for it. So I, I'm inclined to say that what we could probably look, look at is going to a tiered system for the entire state. Because I think when people see the cases starting to rise, that kind of uh, stringent restriction is much more acceptable than to say, even when it's manageable, when the counts are really low, we're still all going to be wearing masks, indoor, outdoor, uh, restrictions of 10 per party. You know, I think that's, when we talk about a long-term plan, that may be much more difficult than we think for people. And we also have to consider the mental state of mind. And there's no question that COVID has dealt uh, a very serious situation too for people with mental issues and those without who have gone into that situation because it's very challenging. So I would be in favor more of looking at a tiered system, uh, but always having that in place statewide, consistent and understood by everybody, regardless of which island you're living on. We are almost out of time, but for those folks, um, you know, of course, you're well known in our community as a business leader. Um, but for folks who are watching, who are just getting to know you, what do you think distinguishes you in the field? Obviously, we know that you're the only one who's announced, but there are uh, some obvious candidates uh, who are out there now. So what do you think makes you different than those others who have made their ambitions clear? 
Well, I think my life experience, you know, uh, leading a business 34 years of an executive, being a CEO of a company is very different from just managing. Uh, it weighs heavily the decisions you make the lives that it impacts. Um, I think that's very different running my own business and being a mom, grandmother, uh, you know, this is why I'm running. I want my four grandchildren to be able to live in Hawaii. And right now, when I look at the situation, that's not a reality for them. And that's why I'm willing to step aside from something I really, I really love 34 years of my life. Um, to do this because I believe that we're at the most critical juncture we're at, we've ever been at. And uh, we need to make the right decisions uh, for the right reasons because our community is depending on this. And uh, before we go, we know that you had mentioned that you are going gearing up to watch a Super Bowl like many other people I have to ask. Do you have a team that you'll be rooting for, uh, whether it be Cincinnati or LA? Well, of course, it's the year of the tiger. Go Bengals! <laughs> <laughs> That's a great note to end it on. We also want to say, of course, Happy Lunar New Year uh, to you and all of those who celebrate. Let me. May, may I ask how you did celebrate yesterday? Oh yes, lots of food. Although that's not really different from any other day. The gao, <laughs> and of course, the wonderful tradition of red money envelopes for the children. So, and happy Chinese New Year, the year of the tiger. Let's go get him. <laughs> All right, Vicky Cayetano, thanks so much for joining us once again and for sharing us uh, with an update on where you're at with your campaign. Uh, we look forward to having more conversations with you in the coming months. Mahalo. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, great to dive deep on the issues with her. It's been a few months, uh, as we did say at the start of our conversation, since we had a chance to talk to her. Uh, she has released a housing plan, which she did uh, last week, which you can find on her website. Uh, one of the interesting things that she shared with us today is that she will be soon stepping away from her role as president of United Laundry. She, of course, has been a part of that, has run that company 34 years. Uh, she got a little emotional. You heard her there at the end uh, talking about making that transition, but she she says that really her heart is in this race and that is why she has decided that she's going to step aside. She'll still be in a uh, an advisory role, but she's not going to be running the day to day anymore because she really does need to focus on the campaign. Yeah, 34 years in that position leading that company. And so for her, this is a, a big step to kind of take a step back and focus her efforts on running for governor. Uh, you know, we heard from her some of the challenges that COVID-19 presents, not being able to do some of those larger events, but she says, uh, she's trying to meet as many people as possible in those smaller groups. We also saw uh, from uh, the campaign finance uh, report that was released uh, yesterday of where she stands in the race for governor, as well as in terms of the fundraising efforts. Uh, clearly, there is a lot of money that has been going into the lieutenant governor's campaign. But Mrs. Cayetano is seeing very optimistic about where they're at and where they're heading in terms of the support that she says she's hearing from the ground. But we also got uh, you know an idea of where she stands on some of the other issues, uh, her stance on Red Hill, as well as on gambling, and her the impact of tourism on uh, the local residents. So we encourage anyone who may have turned in late to come back and watch uh, this full interview to get a fuller in-depth uh, on some of those issues.
That's right. You know, you can always catch us on Channel 50 KKI in the evening and early in the morning. You can also catch it as a podcast. It's on YouTube. If you want it, you can find Spotlight Hawaii. And it is really nice to get to really get into the issues, uh, not just sound bites, but really get to ask her a lot of questions. Uh, wonderful to hear from her as always. And we will be inviting her back in the months to come. Hard to believe, Ryan, when you pointed that out, that the primary is so soon. These candidates, we expect to see a lot more of them. On Friday, we'll be switching gears and talking to someone else who's been in the news. And that, of course, is uh, someone over at UH Manoa. That's why David Matlin, the athletics director for the University of Hawaii, will be joining us. There has obviously been a, a lot of talk about the hiring process of new head coach Timmy Chang, who is now settling into his role as the new head coach leading that football team. But uh, we wanted to follow up with him on some of the decisions that were made leading up to that decision, as well as where the athletic department is going. Uh, a lot of changes that are happening on a national level in terms of how colleges are able to uh, not only recruit with the transfer portal, but also with athletes being able to now make money through NIL deals. And there's also the questions about what happens to TC Ching and UH's involvement in Aloha Stadium. So we have a lot to talk to uh, David Matlin about. That's on Friday. We hope you'll join us then. Until then, take care and aloha. Aloha. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs and Beachside Roofing.